Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, very brief housekeeping here. Just reminding you all once again that if you're supporting the podcast, please subscribe to the subscriber-only feed. You do this by, with your mobile device, going to my website, going to the subscriber content page, and grabbing the RSS with one click on the icon of the podcasting app that you're using. If you're not using a supported app, then you can manually copy the RSS information, and that will ensure that you get all the content that I produce going forward. Okay, well, I'm recording this on October 27th, probably releasing this on the 28th, but this is the one-year anniversary of the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh, where 11 people were murdered. I believe six were injured. Uh, And this was the worst attack on the Jewish community in American history, I believe. And the timing of this episode is fortuitous because I am speaking with Barry Weiss about her new book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. And Barry is a staff writer and editor for the opinion section of the New York Times. She was also an op-ed and book review editor at the Wall Street Journal before that. She has worked at Tablet, the online magazine of Jewish politics and culture. And she is a native of Pittsburgh, and in fact was a bat mitzvah at the Tree of Life synagogue, and knew people who were killed, as you'll hear. So this is a timely conversation, and Barry and I cover a fair amount of ground here. We talk about the different strands of anti-Semitism, right-wing, left-wing, and Islamic. Uh, We talk about the difference between anti-Semitism and other forms of racism, which was a point that only became clear to me in reading Barry's book. We talk about the so-called Great Replacement Theory among white supremacists, the populist response to globalization, the history of anti-Semitism in the U.S., its theological roots, criticisms of Israel, the fate of the Jews in Western Europe, and other topics. I'll have a few more things to say about all this in my afterword. But now, without further delay, I bring you Barry Weiss. I am here with Barry Weiss. Barry, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. So uh, you have written a book that's not going to be controversial at all. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, this has to be fun for you. I know you're. This is already out and launched and uh, reviewed, and you're well into your book tour, or maybe somewhere near the end of it, or maybe the book tour is going to subsume the rest of your life. But it sort of feel it feels like that at the moment. Yeah, the book is How to Fight Antisemitism, and uh, it is a great and bracing read. It's a it's a short book. This is one of these books that you really can start and finish with confidence, which is nice. We want to talk about this in great depth, the, the topic of anti-Semitism. But before we do, I just want to get some context for you and your work as a journalist and, and as an opinion person. How would you describe your politics and your career thus far as a journalist? Well, if you Google me, you'll you'll get one answer, which is that I'm apparently extremely controversial. My answer is that I'm I'm fairly boring. I am very socially liberal. I'm sort of hawkish on foreign policy. I consider myself left of center, but I think like many people who are similarly positioned, we're a bit 
politically homeless at the moment. So we sort of don't fit into either of the increasingly extreme tribes and, and therefore are sort of seized upon and pilloried by both of them. You know, just for some background, I spent six or seven years at the Wall Street Journal in two stints, first as an op-ed editor on the editorial page and then as a book review editor, both of which were under the umbrella of the editorial page, which is, of course, famously, I would say, free market conservative place. And I was always the most left-wing person in that milieu. Then I moved after Trump became the candidate, and I didn't want to be a part of an editorial page that was in some way apologizing for or kind of quietly supporting him or covering for him. I left along with many people, including Brett Stevens, who's now my colleague at the New York Times. And I went from being sort of the most left-wing person at the journal's editorial page to one of the most, I guess, right-wing people at the New York Times. So that sort of, I think, concisely sums it up yeah. a little bit. Yeah. So needless to say, you are uh, often maligned as a Nazi or Nazi adjacent, uh, and I know the feeling. And uh, we, we perhaps we'll get into that, but let's talk about the genesis of the book, because I, I believe you began writing this book after the the synagogue atrocity in Pittsburgh, which landed all too close to home. Perhaps summarize what happened there for, for those who have forgotten. Right. There have been so many since then. On the morning of October 27th, 2018, a white supremacist walked into Tree of Life Synagogue in Squirrel Hill, which is the neighborhood of Pittsburgh, where I was raised. Tree of Life was the synagogue where I became a bat mitzvah. And he, he walked in, he shouted that all Jews must die. And then he murdered 11 people there on a Shabbat Saturday morning. I was in Arizona at the time. I got a text from my youngest sister on our family chat. And she simply said, you know, there's a shooter at Tree of Life. I immediately thought of my dad, who often goes to synagogue at one of the different services that meets there on Saturday morning. There are three communities that meet in that building. And I immediately typed back, is, is dad? I didn't even finish the question. Thank God he wasn't there. He was still at home with my mom. But my mom wrote back, you know, we're going to know a lot of people there. And my dad knew six or seven of the people that were killed. I knew two. I was supposed to fly to Israel, of all places, the following day to do a reporting trip on a very famous archaeological dig in, in Jerusalem called the City of David. I put off the trip. I went home for the week. And I just sort of immersed myself in what happens to a community and a community you know so well in the aftermath of something like this and wrote several columns. I was on Bill Maher that Friday night, and I actually was under contract to write a different book, one that I'm still on the hook for, sort of about our culture wars, but found myself just drawn back again and again to this topic and just sort of seeing it everywhere I looked. And so I sort of went hat in hand to my publisher and asked if I could do this quickly first, and if we could get it out before the the Jewish high holidays, which somehow we managed to do. Hmm. Well, you do a few very useful things in the book, and, and one of which is to differentiate the three poles of anti-Semitism, the right wing, the left wing, and the Islamic. I think we'll find as we speak about these things that the, the latter two interact in ways that are so cynical and, and sinister on the Islamic side, and so phantasmagorically stupid and masochistic on the left-wing side that, I mean, honestly, it's, it's very hard to understand how 
that alliance is even possible. But when we talk about this, I think the left wing and the Islamist problem will become sort of braided. You also make a point which I hadn't really seen made before, which is that one of the reasons why the the Jews are so often attacked from the left and the right and elsewhere is that on the right, they are considered non-white or insufficiently white and yet able to pass for white in this kind of sinister way. And on the left, if anything, they are extra white. I mean, they somehow have extra privilege and the least points in the in the intersectionality Olympics. Perhaps we should we should start with the right wing side because that's sort of the cleanest to talk about. And this obviously is most relevant to the, to what happened in Pittsburgh. Did I describe the way you differentiate these things accurately? Yeah, I had written a column. There was a survey or a study that came out that was very shocking last year about the prevalence of anti-Semitism in Europe from, I believe CNN did it. And I, I wrote a column laying out this, what I described at the time as sort of a three-headed dragon. I use that same structure in the book, but frankly, you know, if I'm honest, I had hoped to avoid the chapter on Islam for all of the reasons that I think we'll get into, but are probably already obvious to anyone who listens to your show and sees the way that your ideas get talked about, that it's a very scary topic to write about. And I had honestly hoped to avoid it and then realized that it would be the most intellectually dishonest thing to write a book about anti-Semitism and not talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with the cleanest case, which is the the extreme right. And you make a point in the book that I, I really had never considered, and it explains a lot, which is that anti-Semitism really is not just another flavor of racism on the right. You know, I won't put the words in your mouth, but how, how is the white supremacist hatred of Jews different from their hatred of other groups? So and there's an anti-racist activist called Eric Ward who runs the Western States Center. Um, and his essay, which is called Skin in the Game, I really recommend it to people, was illuminating to me and, and helped inform my thinking on this. So what he says is that when I heard, and maybe you're similar, when I saw the marchers in Charlottesville shouting, Jews will not replace us, I heard that originally in a very straightforward way. I heard it as, the Jew is not going to take my place in the corner office. A Jew is not going to take my status in society, something along those lines. But I realized in reading Eric Ward's work and others that that's not what they were saying at all. What they were suggesting is that Jews, in a way, and this is Eric Ward's language, they're in a way the greatest trick the devil has ever played. And the reason for that is because, at least in America, this is not true in Israel, where the majority of Jews are of Mizrahi descent, so they're of North African and Middle Eastern descent. In America, the majority of Jews are of Eastern European or Ashkenazi descent. 15% of American Jews are Jews of color, by the most liberal estimate. So we mm. appear to be white, and we can pass as white. And so we trick real white people into thinking that we're like them. But in fact, we're loyal to black people and brown people and immigrants and Muslims. And if you go and you read, you know, you could see them as deranged or you could see it as a kind of, you know, a conspiracy theory. When you read the social media postings of the killer in Pittsburgh, right? The reason that he chose 
tree of life is the synagogue, is that the previous weekend, the previous Shabbat, tree of life had participated in what was called National Refugee Shabbat, in which dozens of synagogues around the country came together to say, we are safe spaces. I hate that language, but we are, we are places that are open to the stranger. And the reason that we are is that one of the core Jewish values is the idea that we should never oppress a stranger because we know what it was to be strangers in the land of Egypt. And that whole initiative was put together by a very, very admirable, righteous organization called HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, founded in the 1880s to help settle Jews fleeing Eastern European pogroms and now helps Jewish refugees, but all kinds of refugees and immigrants around the world. And he said in his, in his social media postings, and there's lots of expletives, but something along the lines of, you know, screw your optics, I'm going in. These people are bringing in, you know, they're sullying the country by helping bringing in the, quote, dirty Muslims. So that is the logic behind it. So Jews are kind of the linchpin in a way of white supremacist thinking because we're the kind of shadow force being the handmaidens of the people that white supremacists see as sullying white Christian America, if that makes sense. Well, unfortunately, there, there's very often a kernel of truth embedded in these conspiracy theories. And, and the kernel of truth here is that of course, Jews have historically had a very positive attitude towards civil rights and been very supportive of civil rights in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and through hard experience learned the consequences of being the victims of jingoistic immigration restrictions. I mean, the, the most probably shocking case is what happened in 1939 with the SS St. Louis. This was a ship that was carrying over 900 Jews who were seeking to escape the Holocaust, and it was denied entry in the U.S. It was also denied entry in Cuba and Canada, and wound up having to return to Europe, where many of these Jews ended up in Auschwitz. Experiences like that that w would explain, you know, apart from just basic human decency around the general problem of, of refugees, that would explain a positive orientation toward immigration that if you're a white supremacist, you would revile. So we could sort of run to the same thing here on the right with the association between Jews and socialism and communism. There have been you know, very prominent Jews who uh, were supportive of those political movements, and it's kind of a, a perfect storm of populism and isolationism and conspiracy thinking you know, that's been fed for more than a century with, you know, notions of born of fake literature like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And, you know, it's, it culminates now in what you refer to as the Great Replacement Theory, which mm -hmm. perhaps you want to summarize. The right is organized around a kind of an anti-globalist inward turn into nationalism and jingoism and isolationism. And Jews are on the wrong side of that divide. Right. And that's a problem like that setup, you know, leaving out the internet and, and all kinds of other new phenomenon. But that is familiar to us, which is one of the reasons that I think right-wing anti-Semitism 
is easier to grasp because we only need to look at, you know, our grandparents' generation in Europe and what they experienced to understand it. It's like, it's, I think it's in our bones in a way. And I would also just, mm. just th- speaking of the St. Louis, I don't usually recommend anything on Twitter, but there's this really beautiful, moving Twitter account called St. Louis Manifest that actually just tweets out the bios of, of everyone that was on that ship that I follow that's just really moving. Mm. And there's photographs and mm. people want to know more about it. Wow. So remind me, what, what is the Great Replacement Theory? The Great Replacement Theory is, there's a great essay that Thomas Chatterton Williams wrote about it, but it's, it's really this basic idea summarized by Steve King, which is you can't replace our civilization, as he put it, with someone else's babies. This to me is a deeply anti-American idea because the ideal of this country is the idea that our civilization is open to anyone who wants to adhere to the ideas of it. It has nothing to do with Mm. bloodline. It has everything to do with fealty to a certain set of beliefs. And this whole notion of sort of like blood and soil nationalism that you increasingly see on the right and that is at the heart of great replacement theory, which is that civilization or culture is somehow something that is passed down in the blood and not something that's passed down through culture and ideas and beliefs is just, to me, deeply anti-American. And anyway, that's the idea of it. Yeah, well, and it's mirrored on the left with this notion that identity, you know, racial identity in particular is morally and politically paramount as though, and, and anything you would say against, let's say, Islam on the left will be immediately conflated with with an attack on people for the color of their skin or the, the origin of their birth, whereas it's always, certainly in the context of a conversation like this, a criticism of ideas and their consequences, right? If, if I'm going to criticize neo-Nazis, I'm not criticizing white people, I'm criticizing terrible ideas. And when I'm criticizing Islamism or jihadism, I'm not criticizing Arabs or any other ethnicity. I'm criticizing the consequences of ideas. And yes. The fact that that it's, it's so that the people can't track this is continues to be bewildering. Yeah. Well, part of it is that they can track it, and they're deciding not to. Yeah. And the other problem, right, is that we have a president who does exactly the opposite. You know, he attacks people not based on their ideas often, but based on right. immutable characteristics like their race or their gender or, you know, their religion. Obviously, that's mutable, but, you know, that's part of the problem is that he, the second he touches something, it becomes toxic. Let's take a moment to just remind people a little bit more about the history of anti-Semitism in the U.S. because it reaches further back than I think most people realize. So let's just briefly talk about the 1930s and mm-hmm. what you do in the book. Well, so you know, it's amazing to me that most people my age have never heard of the name Charles Coughlin, but that's a name that if you're at all involved in the Jewish community, that is very, very familiar. He was the radio host, sort of the Rush Limbaugh of his day, I guess, different, but very, very popular in the same way, much more popular. I think something like 30 million Americans listen to him every week. He is someone, he was a priest who's based in Michigan. He got so many letters that 
the town he was from actually had to build a new post office to keep up with the amount of mail he received. He was just hugely, hugely popular. And this was something who, you know, told 30 million Americans that the Jews deserved Kristallnacht. He talked about the Jews as modern Shylocks who have grown fat and wealthy. I mean, these are some of the most sort of old, vile, anti-Semitic tropes, and you could hear them on the radio in America in the 1930s. You know, Henry Ford, people think of Henry Ford as the automaker, which of course he was, but he had a, Hitler shouted him out in Mein Kampf. He was awarded this thing called the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, which was the highest honor the Nazis gave. And I think, you know, there was a short film made about this next thing I'll tell you, which is, I really recommend to people, it's six or seven minutes. And you can watch, you know, in 1939, 20,000 people showed up at Madison Square Garden to raise their arms to Heil Hitler and stood beneath signs saying, you know, smash Jewish communism and stop the Jewish domination of Christian Americans. So that all happened here. And yet still, and this is the thing that I find fascinating, I was still very much, and I don't know about you, Sam, raised on the idea that America was uniquely inoculated from the virus of anti-Semitism that was just much more natural, or so I was taught in places like France and Germany and England. Yeah, yeah. It actually wasn't until I read the book, The Abandonment of the Jews by David Wyman, which I think came out in the mid-80s, that I understood just how touch and go the history is here. I mean, you, you literally had congressmen giving anti-Semitic speeches on the floor of Congress while the Holocaust was raging and we understood the shape of it. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling that the, the history was what it was. And, you know, you could add Charles Lindbergh to the, to the list of prominent figures who, who got singled out for uh, Nazi accolades. And Charles Coughlin was, was a Catholic priest. So he links up with a larger trend of Catholic fascism or fondness for fascism and, you know, explicit anti-Semitism. And all of this, of course, is cashed out in Christian theology and, and I mean, both Catholic and Protestant theology. I mean, they, you know, the Protestants are hardly better. I mean, once Martin Luther got an audience, he started, you know, raging against the Jews really a, a explicitly eliminationist vein. And you cite some of this in your book, that the New Testament has several verses that, that seem to justify anti-Semitism outright. Yeah, I mean, the most famous of which is, you know, I think it's in the book of Matthew, his blood be on us and, and on our children, you know, which was used to justify, you know, untold amounts of violence. It's such It's such a historically bloody line that even Mel Gibson, who right now is making a movie called The Rothschilds, and I'm not kidding, even he in, in um, uh, Passion uh. of the Christ, which was in Aramaic, didn't translate the verse into English because that's, you know, that's how controversial it's been. But of course, there was Vatican II, and I don't want to undo the amount of progress that's happened because, of course, it has. Yes, but again, the, the progress has to grapple with the fact that Obviously, there's an incoherence here because there are anti-Semitic lines in the Bible, and uh, you know, two thousand years of theologically mandated anti-Semitism resulted, and yet Jesus and the twelve apostles and the Virgin Mary were all Jews. 
how there could have been such a durable basis for Jew hatred is a little hard to square, except for the fact that it really was a kind of internecine schism exactly. in the religion. I mean, you have Jews who were, in order to maintain their Judaism, had to explicitly reject the Messiah status of Jesus. And that's, you know, that is the, the founding sin that really is unforgivable if you're a, a dogmatic Christian. Yeah. The other thing that just thinks, just going back a bit to, to American history piece is after Pittsburgh, you know, there was a lot of talk about how there had never been an attack on, on, a, on a synagogue. Actually, there had never been that many people killed in a synagogue. That was true. And it was by far the most violent attack against Jews in American history. Also true. But there had been, and, and this is one of the things I was shocked to find out, a lot of attacks on synagogues, right. a lot. You know, and I, I sort of go through them in the book, and I, the ones that stick out to me the most were these sort of spate of attacks specifically targeting civil rights supporting rabbis in the South, in Mississippi, and in Atlanta specifically. And one of, one of the occasions, they actually went and I believe bombed the house of the rabbi. And, and that was news to me. I had not grown up learning about that at all. Yeah, yeah. There's an ambient level of anti-Semitic hate crime in the U.S., and there has always been. And I, I've always been somebody who, as a Jew, have minimized its significance. I mean, it's, it's always felt to me that, that anti-Semitism is not a major problem in the U.S. And, and even I mean, as shocking as you know, the murder of dozens of people in any given year is, we're not talking about you know, 9-11 scale terroristic atrocities against Jews in general. Obviously, it could get a lot worse, but the thing to point out is that all of the people who complain about hate crimes against other groups, you know, in particular Muslims in the U.S., have been complaining about a level of hate which has always been less than the level of hate crime against Jews. I mean, any given year, if you look at FBI statistics, yeah. And you look for hate crimes against mosques and, and Muslims, it's always less than ha the number of hate crimes against Jews and synagogues. I and mean, these are mostly property crimes in, in most cases. And again, I, you know, I, don't, I don't mean to minimize it for the people who suffer directly, but in a, in a country of you know, 330 million people, the numbers are, are not that high. But it's generally ignored by, I mean, we just, we have to make apples to apples comparisons here. If you're going to, derange our politics over how awful it's been getting for Muslims in, in the United States. Mm -hmm. It would be only decent to notice that the numbers for, of the same sorts of insults and crimes against Jews has for every year since 9-11 been, you know, 5x worse. And that's just you know, routinely ignored on the left. Yeah. I mean, the thing I've been thinking about recently is, you know, the curious silence about this sort of low-level rolling program that is happening in Brooklyn and has been happening over months, but has gotten sort of increasingly heated up over the past weeks. In the last week of August in Brooklyn, there were, I think, three, but maybe four very, very violent assaults against ultra-Orthodox men. Mm. In one case, the man was beaten in a park with a paving stone, lost his teeth, in another, he was uh, a man was beaten with his belt, 
I'm reading right now of a, an incident where a woman was walking on Rosh Hashanah, a 22-year-old woman, and someone came by and ripped her scarf and her wig from her head. Imagine if that was a young Muslim woman and her hijab was ripped off. Imagine if those were Muslim yeah. religious men who those crimes happened to. Like, that's a front page news story. And yet, I've seen almost nothing about this. When I mention it to people who aren't in New York, they often haven't even heard about it. Yeah. No, I, I haven't heard about it. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. I mean, that to me is is astonishing. It's like, you know, and and I was reading, I was so over Rosh Hashanah, which was a few days ago, there was an attack on a synagogue in Brooklyn in which a few, and it looks to from the video like they're young black teenage boys, they broke the windows of a synagogue in Brooklyn. And Julia Salazar, who is the DSA, the Democratic Socialist Democrat, who is the representative of that district, wrote this about the attack. Two nights ago, some young people apparently threw objects into a window of a building at Throop and Bartlett Street where neighbors were gathered for Rosh Hashanah prayers. We need to care for each other and protect each other. This isn't acceptable in our district or our city. So some young people threw objects into a window of a building. The idea that this is the representative and she can't say the words synagogue or anti-Semitism is breathtaking to me, really. Yeah. But this is this is par for the course at this point. Like it, it, I want to be shocked and it, it sort of doesn't shock me anymore. Yeah, okay. So we are being inevitably dragged leftward and uh, so i say we we go there so the so the left wing has its own problem with anti-semitism and the disregard of anti-semitism well i guess let's for those who i'm sure most people are familiar with the term but let's define the concept of intersectionality before we wade into this morass okay so intersectionality was this idea that was coined or like really a framework for thinking about discrimination and oppression. And it was coined by this woman named Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. And it was, she based it on this very interesting case, which took place at General Motors, in which five Black women sued GM for hiring discrimination. And at the time that they sued, GM had jobs for black men on the factory floor, and it had jobs for white women as secretaries. And this meant that these black women, these five black women, couldn't be, they weren't acceptable in either job. For one job, they were too female. For another, they were too black. And so they kind of fell through the cracks because of these intersecting discriminations. So that idea in in and of itself is very sound. And the idea that, you know, some people can sort of be doubly blessed while some people can be doubly compromised, that again, great idea. The problem is, is that in reality, intersectionality functions as a kind of caste system. And what I mean by that is, if you think about like Western civilization up until, you know, five minutes ago, the caste system was clear. If you're a white, able-bodied, tall man that looks like, you know, John Hamm, you're at the top of the food chain and go down the line. The more disabled you are or female you are or gay or, you know, go down the line, the lower you are in the food chain. 
what intersectionality does is it reverses that caste system. It says that the, the John Hams of the world are at the bottom and the people at the top are people that are transgender, people that are queer, people that are disabled, people that, you know, and I can go on and on and on. And the more claim to victimhood you have, the higher you are in that caste system. Mm. Now, the, the place where it gets even worse and more damaging is the idea that the more claim you have to victimhood, in fact, the more claim you have to truth and morality, the more standing you have to even comment on topics. And this to me is, you know, as anti-American as the idea that, you know, that to have a certain skin color makes you more or less American. The idea that you are sort of condemned to the lane of your class or your station or even your religion, or that having a certain skin color means that you need to ascribe to a certain set of ideas, that to me is is incompatible, frankly, with liberal democracy. And it is an idea that has taken tremendous hold over the political left. And increasingly, you see it seeping into the mainstream of the Democratic Party. Yeah. So I have a kind of a litmus test here, which can very quickly determine whether somebody is reachable by argument in the context of left-wing politics and this principle of intersectionality, because it even violates itself in many cases. And, and totally. the litmus test for me always is, what is someone's attitude toward Ayan Hirsi Ali, if they know who she is? And I would just put it to you that if understanding her full story, you can't recognize that Ayan is actually a feminist hero, there is something wrong with you. There's some, you have a mm -hmm. totally incoherent moral worldview. This was just became especially vivid to me actually two days ago. My wife and I were at a talk that Ayan was giving, and it was the first talk she had given on a college campus in three years, ever since she was deplatformed at Brandeis. And there were two women behind us, you know, two young women. I mean, they were probably college students, and they were probably 20. And they were grumbling about more or less everything Ayan said. They, they weren't heckling, but every time Ayan demurred from left-wing identity politics, under their breath and not so under their breath, it, you'd hear some kind of whinging comment from these girls. And it's important to point out that Ayan had already run through her entire life story, which contains just astonishing abuse, you know, from FGM onward. And she was talking about the abuse of her peers in school and in their families, you know, the, you know physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, routinely visited upon these girls. And, you know, Ayan is Somali, right? Which apparently does not make her black enough to win intersectionality points here. But if you, you look at her story and what she's had to suffer and what and the kinds of threats she continues to get i mean you would have to find a transgender person from mars who should have more intersectional points than ion and yet this is the kind of reception she gets from some pampered white chicks on a college campus it really is it's astonishing to me and to take the whole picture of the worldview here you if you think as these you know, women certainly do, that someone like Brett Kavanaugh is a fucking monster, 
But you also think that a hijabi theocrat like Linda Sarsour is a feminist icon, and Ayan isn't. You really need a brain transplant. I mean, this is just, this doesn't run through ethically. This is the kind of black hole that is sucking everything into a state of moral confusion on the left. Well, the example that I think about a lot is the way that someone like Megan Phelps Roper gets treated in The New Yorker. And I'm a big fan of hers. I'm excited for her new book. Yeah. She's, you know, grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church as a, I don't even know if we can call it Christian, but as a Christian fundamentalist, they're the God. A, a Christian cult. The God yeah. hates fags people. And then you look yeah. at someone like Sarah Hader, who I'm looking forward to meeting in real life, who's Pakistani, former Muslim, outspoken atheist, similar journey in a way out of religious fundamentalism. And yet she is either ignored or when she's not ignored, she's smeared as somehow promoting Islamophobia. This to me is crazy. Like these are the two very, very similarly situated people around my age, both women, both left fundamentalist religion. And yet one is valorized. I'm thrilled for her. And one is either ignored or demonized. Yeah, I would add Yasmin Muhammad there, who I think just got deplatformed from Twitter, you know, two days ago. She's been reinstated, but it, she got reinstated by, you know, me DMing Jack and trying to figure out what the hell happened there, right? So it's, and this is routine. I mean, every time someone interviews one of these women on their YouTube channel, their videos get demonetized just for talking to them. This is not just confused students on college campuses. This is the policy of tech companies and the way in which they're deranged by, you know, campaigns of Islamist protest against people who are true feminists. I mean, again, this is how the feminism breaks down. If you're concerned about Me Too violations in the West, as you, you should be, then you have to have some sense of proportion when thinking about what it's like for women under Sharia law and suffering FGM and honor killings and the reality of real rape culture that exists throughout the Muslim world. Getting groped is not the same thing as getting a clitorectomy. It's the insidiousness of the idea of who are we to judge? I remember running up against this wall again and again and again when I was a student in college. And it was honestly the thing that, if I can even use this language anymore, woke me up, literally. Because I remember getting into a debate with people who were smart and we had heard a lecture. It was, it was somehow adjacent. It, I don't think it was Ion, but it was someone like that. And I remember having a conversation saying, well, guys, you know, all people are created equal, but not all cultures are equally good at protecting people like me, people who are gay, people that are women, people that are disabled, people that are different, right? And literally that could not be said. No. And this was 15 years ago in college. I remember being in a course, I will never forget this, where widow burning was basically justified. Right. I'm, I'm serious, by a professor that was absolutely beloved. And, you know, we were in the class and we were hearing about the evils of colonialism. And of course, there were many, many evils inflicted by colonialism. And yet, widow burning is never justified in my universe, ever. 
And that was the kind of thing, like that was the machine that you were being put through ideologically. And you really had to look elsewhere and fight hard to find other perspectives. But that was very much the norm, this kind of, you know, cultural relativism. Who are we to judge? Yeah. Really should be sending me a, a drink to the room that I'm currently right. sitting in yeah. in order to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's later over there. You 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 merit a drink. So I have a fairly paradoxical position on Israel and it's it's difficult to summarize. I once I think I know it. I wrote it, I read it, I recently reread it. Uh, yeah, I once released a podcast titled I believe why don't I ever criticize Israel question mark and the title was read as a claim that I never criticize Israel is one of the most poorly titled pieces I've ever put out and so I got just an, a tsunami of hatred for never criticizing Israel even though in the first sentences of the podcast I made it clear that I do criticize Israel and I criticize Judaism and my support for Israel is in one sense unequivocal and in another sense non-existent depending on what part of the conversation we're in but let's get there just give me your position on Israel and how you differentiate criticism of Israel and even zionism from anti-semitism and how those two things run together okay so first let's talk about sort of my baseline which is as a jew who is deeply aware of what Jewish powerlessness means, most recently with the Holocaust, but really dig into any century, any place before that. And it's a similarly horrible picture. I feel immensely grateful to be alive during the Jewish return to power. And that's a hard thing to say in our era where power is something that's regarded as immoral and profane. But I think that the people who try and pretend that Jewish powerlessness and Jewish protection ever coexisted are, are revising history in a really, really dramatic way. Mm. So that is sort of my baseline position, that power with all of the horrible moral quandaries that it entails is, is better than powerlessness for the Jewish people. That said, certainly, let me just kind of sign off on these items as as you bring them over. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. And we mentioned the SS St. Louis. So you have Jews fleeing the death camps of Europe, and you have them being denied entry, and you know, effectively denied survival in many cases by the rest of the world. That's an argument for the state of Israel. Even though I'm allergic to the idea of a state being organized around a religious identity mm -hmm. on the basis of you know, real estate claims made in a book imagined to have been dictated or inspired by the creator of the universe, and in a perfect world, I would want to see no states organized around that kind of identity politics if ever there were a justification for one state being organized in this way, it's for the state of Israel. I mean, the, the Jews have been the object of murderous hatred for literally millennia and have been run out of every country that has been a country, practically, that had Jews in them for, you know, over the centuries. So 
I think Israel should be the last state of identity politics left standing if we manage to unwind that principle at some point in the future. Yeah. I mean, just to to like riff on that for a minute, I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, I don't think I have a commitment in any way to Israel being a Jewish state per se, but in order for it not to be that, we would need to see just an absolutely revolutionary sea change take place in the neighborhood where it is situated. Mm. Because it's not even just the Jewish experience. It's like, look at any other minority in the Middle East without the protection of an army. Look at the Yazidis, the Zoroastrians, the Christians of the Middle East, a story we never talk Mm. about. They're being literally driven from their cradle of civilization. Like there will not be Christians in the Middle East a decade from now. Yeah. Let's linger there for one second, because that's genuinely mysterious to me that the decimation of Christians and the, you know, the ethnic cleansing of Christians you know, throughout the Muslim world, how is that not a bigger story among Christians in the West? I think among, certainly among evangelical communities, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. It just never shows up in, in the New York Times or any real mainstream paper. I will say that Emma Green, who's a really fair and excellent reporter, did a long story about it recently in The Atlantic for people that are curious. It was moving. So you have to have sort of such a parochial view of the world to outsource our domestic political realities on conflicts and places thousands of miles away. And yet that seems to me exactly what happens. People talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as if it's like, as if it's akin to something like American racism in which Palestinians are Black Americans and Israelis are white Americans. This just bears no relationship to reality at all. Yeah, yeah. And it's an apartheid state. Here's the moral asymmetry that for me cuts through all the leftist and Islamist bullshit about Israel and the Palestinians and about Jews and the Muslim world generally. It's a simple question. You just have to ask yourself, what would each side do if it had the power to do whatever it wants, right? And we know what Israel would do because it does have the power to do more or less whatever it wants. It certainly has the power to kill everyone in Gaza and the West Bank tomorrow. This is something they could do any day they decided to do it. And rather than do that, what we see is that Israel takes significant pains not to kill civilians when it responds to Hamas's rocket attacks. And of course, it winds up killing civilians because Hamas uses its population as human shields, right? And, you know, in in any war, there are going to be civilians killed. But that's clearly not what the Israeli Defense Forces are intending to do. And and we know that Israel pays just an extraordinary price in world condemnation when when they do wind up killing kids and other non-combatants. And we also know this price is disproportionate to that paid by any other country in the same circumstances. I mean, the the U.S. doesn't pay a similar price, nor do any of our allies. And conversely, we know that Hamas targets civilians. And even more important than that, we know that the discourse about Jews in the Muslim world and in the Hadith for the last thousand years is explicitly genocidal. Right, I mean that the charter of Hamas is explicitly genocidal, and we've already had a Holocaust. We've already had 
several other genocides in the 20th century. So we know that people are capable of trying to exterminate a whole race of men, women, and children. We, we know that genocide is a thing. And we know that they're capable of doing it even when they have to make major and seemingly irrational sacrifices to do it. I mean, when it, when it really doesn't serve their interests, as it didn't serve the interests of the Third Reich. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it made no sense for the Third Reich to waste that much energy trying to kill every last Jew in Europe when they were fighting a, a multi-front war. And so when people tell us, literally tell us ad nauseum, and more importantly, when they tell themselves ad nauseum, when, when they think no one is listening, that they intend to murder a whole people, we should believe them, right? I mean, it's, it, it's insane not to believe them. It's, yes. This is the thing that I think about all the time, which is either ideas matter and we believe people when they tell us who they are and what they want, or they don't. But some people want to tell me or want to tell us that when a white supremacist says he wants to kill Hispanics and Muslims and immigrants and Jews, that we take seriously as well we should. And yet somehow when the jihadist says it or when the Hamas charter says it or when the ayatollahs who run the Islamic Republic of Iran say it, somehow that's waved off as political grievance and not intent to cause tremendous violence or genocide. Those two things are not compatible. Either you believe people when they say what they want or you don't. Yeah. I think we should have a brief sidebar conversation on this topic because I think that there's one other strand here which which I find genuinely confusing and I, I still don't know how to differentiate this from what we're now talking about. But there there does seem to be a species of assertion you know, and even, you know, the writing of manifestos in, in the white supremacist space, which seems like it's, it's not as straightforward as that. I mean, you have this emergence of troll culture on 4chan and 8chan, and you have these, you know, incel lunatics who are circulating what are taken at face value as white supremacist memes. They'll circulate Holocaust images or, you know, lynching images. And they seem to, and they're, they're trying to try and dress it up as irony or a joke. Yeah, well, yeah. But in many cases, it really is just a kind of derangement or the most extreme expression of troll culture or shit posting. Or, I mean, they're just trying to get a rise out of the normies. It's genuinely hard to see where th that stops and real, in this case, white supremacist ideology begins. And there may be some Muslim variant of this. I don't know. I mean, there may be people who were categorized as aspiring ISIS followers, but who are really just in this land of, you know, nihilism. And it's just like the emergence of Thanatos on the internet, where you have people who are not sincere about anything except they just want to see it all burn. And yet they're trading in the memes of ideological racism or ideological anti-Semitism. And I think it's genuinely confusing when you try to analyze it in the aftermath of a school shooting or a synagogue attack or Christchurch or any of these other but episodes. Isn't that, but aren't those cases the ones that are actually clear? Like when the Christchurch gunman says, you know, spends tons of time on social media posting these ironic memes and then says, 
you know, I think he said, literally, it's time to make a real life effort post. And then he goes out and murders 52 people. Isn't it Hmm. then clear that the irony is dressing up what is actually just the same disgusting hate? Yeah, well, well, in that case, it might be clear, but in, in some other cases, it might not. I think it was in the case of Christchurch, he said something like he was radicalized by Candace Owens, right? So that on some right. level, these are not sincere statements of propaganda. I mean, there's a kind of... I get, I get what you're saying. It is, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of living in, in, in the Batman universe. And there is just the fact that there, there's some number of people who just want to become famous and to commit suicide by cop like a school shooting, there's the typology of the of the kind of person who would who just goes to their school to kill their classmates. And they may even, I mean, like to, in the case of Columbine, you had Eric Harris, you know, one of the Columbine killers who, in his journal, I think there was a, a lot of white supremacist stuff in his journal, but this was not an intelligible act of white supremacy. This is it's just the murder of children, right, by somebody who was deeply disturbed. And yet, if we'd spent a lot of time analyzing his journal, I think it would be possible to try to connect the dots in a in a white supremacist vein. And and it's just, uh, I, I mean, perhaps there's not much to read into this, but I do think that there, there are cases where the straightforward reading of here's more hate and its consequences doesn't run through in quite the same way. Yeah. 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 I guess I'll, I guess I'll just say like, when I see my face on many of these white supremacist forums and there is, you know, a Pepe the Frog on me or, a, you know, a, the most recent one I saw was, you know, the yellow star that the Nazis used to mark the Jews on my forehead. Yeah, maybe the person who put that up intended it as an ironic joke, but I'm certainly not seeing it that way. I'm seeing it as a threat. Yeah. So that's what I'd say is like, I don't know. And there are experts, I'm sure there are many experts in many books that are coming out about this. My feeling is like err on the side of treating the irony deadly seriously. It's obviously a different, like I acknowledge though what you're saying though, which is it, it's a different beast and it's not as coherent maybe as jihadist ideology. It's different in the sense that, it, and it does kind of link up with the Trump phenomenon for me. It's just like, you know, like Trump is somebody who is impressively lacking in ideology. Right. I mean, he's just chaos. I mean, he's like, it's like the chaos of narcissism and selfishness and ignorance. A personality cult has formed around him. And I mean, to some degree, it's the, you know, it's, it's gaining energy from the opportunism and cowardice of normal Republicans who do have an ideology. But there is a, just a spirit of, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, trolling that is animating this. Like, it's just like, let's just, let's just own the libtards. That's the goal. Like, as long as Trump is making someone like me tear his hair out, well, then that's all that needs to be accomplished. There's nothing, there's no more, there are no more ideas behind this. Trump could change all of his policy commitments insofar as he has any tomorrow, and he wouldn't lose his support, right? He could just- No, that's true. I'm thinking about the idea that, you know, a lot of these people basically imagine themselves like Heath Ledger mm. and the Joker. But Heath Ledger and the Joker still kills a ton of people. Right. And like, you know, the I've read the manifesto of the the killer in Poway. And in a certain sense, it's, you know, a mishmash poo-poo platter of anti-Semitism. You know, was he sounds like he came from a family, you know, the reading of reading what his parents said after the attack was just heartbreaking. Of like, we don't know where our child got these ideas. You know, did it start off ironic and become real? 
I don't know. I don't really care when I'm sitting with the daughter of Lori Gilbert Kay, who was murdered there. You know, it, it's it's I guess it's not as interesting to me. Yeah, well, I, I guess it, it just has to be if it's yet another variable, uh, we have to understand it. I mean, so obviously yeah. ideas have consequences and what we're we're taking ideas seriously here in this case, anti-Semitic ideas, but, you know, racist ideology has consequences and, yeah. you know, any, any other form of tribalistic intolerance has consequences when it's, you know, sincerely expressed and sincerely believed. And I, I just, I just worry that there is another thing going on, which is, you know, nihilistic, burn it all down chaos that is, in some cases, proving itself to be indistinguishable from sincerely held beliefs, right? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, and I, again, I'm, I'm just expressing my confusion more than anything else here. So ba- back to Israel and her enemies. Yes. So this is the problem. Israel is in a very dangerous neighborhood. And I think the aspirations of the, the Arab states who attacked Israel in, in 48 were probably genocidal. They were. They were annihilationist. Yeah. So it's like, what what would have happened had Israel lost? It would not have been the mirror image of what happens when Israel wins, right? And yet the left can't seem to do that moral arithmetic anymore, if it ever could. And so Israel is criticized. Israel has been described as the, the Jew among nations. I don't know who came up with that analogy, but it does seem apt. Israel, you know, for all her flaws, and she certainly has flaws, uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu may be chief among them at the moment, but Israel is held to a different standard at the UN and in any other place where people are trying to weigh the actions of these countries in the balance. What's your view of Israel's PR problem now? And by the way, it's it's hilariously unwinnable. I mean, when you try and make the point, the simple point that if I want to walk around in the Middle East right now wearing a tank top and shorts, there's one place where I can do that. And then you make that very basic point, which is like, where would you want to live as a liberal in the Middle East right now? There's like not even a question, right? You can, you can even sharpen it up. Where would you want to live as a liberal Muslim in the Middle East right now? Exactly. And yet you, you make that point and you're accused of pinkwashing, right? The idea that like, you're racing, you're using, you know, Israel's great record on gay rights and women's rights and, you know, socialized medicine and all the rest in order to sort of whitewash its original sin, which is, in my view, existing at all, is what they really have a problem with. Yeah. This is the thing. I, I really believe that, and I think that if Bibi doesn't form a government and Benny Gantz becomes prime minister, this will become increasingly clear. Because hopefully Benny Gantz will become prime minister and there will be a government that does not indulge in the kind of vile Arab race baiting that Bibi engages in. Hopefully we will have a prime minister in Israel that, you know, is more concerned about the relationship between Israel and diaspora Jewry that doesn't give all of the power over religious spaces and public life to the ultra-Orthodox. Hopefully all that will change. But fundamentally what's not going to change is Israel's place in its neighborhood where you know the judgment that most israelis make about what's necessary to maintain its safety and its basic use of military power to protect itself 
I believe that's actually what people have a problem with. People do not like Jews with power. It's just, you know, for whatever reason, I think I think that's really the problem. I really, really don't think that for most people, the problem is is Netanyahu. For me, it is. <laughs> you know, and I've written many columns criticizing various of his policies. Mm. But I think that that will become increasingly clear, and then that, and then I hope the conversation will become more clear about what their real problem is. Yeah, and and the justification for the state of Israel only becomes more salient when you consider what's happening for Jews in Western Europe now. How do how do you view the prospect of living as a Jew in Europe and in, in a country like France these days? I think it was in maybe 2014 that Jeff Goldberg wrote that cover story in The Atlantic about the Jewish experience in Europe being over. I think that was five years ago now, maybe longer. Personally, if I were living as a Jew in Paris and living as a publicly visible Jew meant that I couldn't wear a Jewish star in public without fear, meant that, you know, I was talking to Mark Weissman, or I think it was an interview actually with him, but he's an excellent French Jewish writer, wrote a recent book called Hate about anti-Semitism in France that's, that's really great. And he told me that when he's on the metro in Paris and he's reading a book with a Jewish theme or a Jewish cover or the word Jew in the title or Israel, he hides it. To me, that would not be an acceptable level of compromise. And for that reason, if you talk to most Jews in France, they have you know their second apartment if they can afford it in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. That's just the reality. And when you talk to people who are similarly you know, connected or proud of their Jewish identity in London, and you talk to them honestly about what they would do if Jeremy Corbyn were to become prime minister, each one of them has a plan mm. for leaving. Yeah, I mean, there, there are details that, that one hears that are pretty shocking that, that capture the slow encroach of something pretty ugly. I mean, so for instance, I, I remember hearing a few years ago, I forget who said this, but this was on a, a, a woman from France. I believe she was a journalist, said this on a panel. She was on with Douglas Murray and Majid Nawaz. And she said, for instance, you can't open a Jewish school in Paris anymore because no one will insure it. Right? You literally mm-hmm. can't get insurance for such a school. And that's just, we're talking about one of the capitals of Europe that can't maintain the social order enough where people feel safe opening a Jewish school. It's, these are invisible losses that until you hear about them, you, just, you, you yeah. would never suspect that they exist. Well, one, one thing that um, I should say, and I feel, I feel really torn about this, right? Because on the one hand, when I started in the aftermath of Pittsburgh doing speeches to different Jewish communities, I would always talk about, you know, be proud of who you are, wear a on public, wear a Jewish star, don't ever hide your Jewish identity. And the more the attack started happening in places where I have friends with children mm. who are those kids walking around in their kippot and who are telling me, I'm very worried about my child and I'm considering telling them to put a baseball hat over their head. And I'm not talking now about ultra-Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews, although I know them too, but I'm talking about just conservative or whatever, modern Orthodox, you know, I realize like, who am I to tell you? Like, I want to imagine if I'm living in Paris that I would be brazen and public in my Jewish identity. 
But I also believe in the value of protecting life, the fundamental Jewish value of choosing life. And I just think it's a really, really hard situation because on the one hand, I really, really believe that societies that cannot protect their Jews are societies that are dying. History just shows that very clearly. And I want places like England and France to continue to be healthy democracies. And so in the interest of, like in that broader interest, I want Jews to sort of wage the fight in the places where they currently live. And yet I also understand that like a certain level of risk and compromise becomes untenable and not worth it. And in that case, again, I'm drawn back to thank God that there is a state of Israel that exists as a refuge for these people. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, not to mention, I mean, one thing that's often overlooked is like the Ashkenazi Jews who were at the forefront of founding the state of Israel imagined themselves as being able to save the Jews of Europe. Unfortunately, they weren't, it didn't happen fast enough. But the Jews they did save were the Jews of the Arab world who were living as second-class citizens. And I think one of the most interesting things that's, that I'm certainly doing um, and that I think lots of other similarly situated American Jews of you know, Eastern European descent are learning is like there is this whole other Jewish universe that we were not raised on. I was really raised on the Ashkenazi version of Jewish history. Mm. And now I'm learning about the Mizrahi version. And frankly, the Mizrahi Eastern version of Jewish history is the one that Israel is more a continuation of. Israel is located where it's located, and that is in the East. And it is populated by people that have much more of a visceral sense of what that means than, frankly, I do. Mm. And that's one of the things that I think has been that I'm in adulthood trying to learn a lot more about. And there are writers like, you know, Mati Friedman's a great example who are sort of leading the way in telling that Mizrahi story and telling the story of Israel as being fundamentally indigenous in a way that I didn't even fully grasp. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I've spent no time thinking about that distinction either. And it, it, it seems important. It's like, it's like we were raised or I was raised on the idea that Israel's kind of almost like a mini Western liberal outpost in the Middle East, and it's exactly like America. But it's not. It's different in some fundamental ways. It shares many values with us, thank God. It's still, broadly speaking, I would say a liberal democracy, but it is also very much of the Arab world. And I think it's important to integrate that reality in a way that I hadn't, frankly, into the past few years when I started immersing myself more in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Barry, I know your time is running short. I just wish you the best of luck with this book, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sam. Okay. Well, uh, that was great. Barry is very, very clear on this topic, and the fact that she's such a controversial figure says something not about her, but about the ocean of misinformation that we are all swimming in at the moment. And speaking of that ocean, I had a recent experience on Twitter that was instructive, very much on this point. I happened to see a very moving and disturbing documentary on the Holocaust and the current rise of anti-Semitism, especially in Western Europe. And um, I tweeted about it to recommend that people see it. It came out on Amazon on October 23rd, so it's available there now. The title is Never Again Is Now, 
and it is well worth watching. It's a very personal story that opens up into a fairly grim look at the state of things in Europe, to some degree in the U.S., but mostly focused on Europe, um, and mostly on Western Europe. So I, I tweeted about this, and I tend not to look at what's coming back at me on Twitter these days, for good reason, but I happened to look at this just because I wanted to see the reaction to the trailer to this film, and I see that someone has tweeted at me, I thought it was just the, quote, fringe of the fringe who believe this kind of thing. Right, and I see that this person is an anthropologist. And um, if you if you spend enough time on this podcast, you know at once that this is a snide tweet because um, you know I have said that I consider anti-Semitism in the U.S. and white supremacy generally in the U.S. to be a fringe phenomenon. Again, that could change. So I don't know why I bothered to wade in here. These impulses are genuinely mysterious. So, to clarify things, I responded, The problem of anti-Semitism in Europe is mostly coming from the Muslim community and the far left. It is still a fringe phenomenon in the U.S., though that could change. And this tweet elicited pure contempt and hatred from people who have real reputations. I saw at least one journalist among them. So I ventured one more tweet to clarify what could have been considered an error on my part. I said Europe, right, where in truth I meant Western Europe. Now, Europe is also used a lot in this film, and mostly it is a story of Western Europe when you're talking about the effect of Muslim anti-Semitism in Europe. So that was worth clarifying. So I, so I wrote, well, this got a fairly crazy response. Perhaps one point of clarification is in order. The film is about the rise of anti-Semitism in Western Europe, but somehow I don't think the people responding here will care about that clarification. And indeed they didn't. This is the kind of experience that really shuts people down. People leave Twitter. In fact, there was clearly a movement to get me kicked off Twitter in response to this tweet. I got a warning from Twitter saying that your account is under review, though no action will be taken at this time. Granted, this kind of thing is pretty boring, but it's no less consequential. And this is a third rail which I touched, which many people decline to touch for good reason, because what comes back to you is accusations of bigotry and ignorance, even from people who should know better, I would say, from people who, in many cases, do know better and are just smearing you in bad faith. But for anyone who wants to look, there have been several studies characterizing anti-Semitism where when people report being victims of anti-Semitic hate crime, they are then asked to characterize where it came from. And a certain percentage can't say, but others can say it seemed to have come from right-wingers or left-wingers or Muslims. The victims of these attacks report on the nature of the attack. And there are multiple studies like this. And the majority of these attacks are coming, as I said, from Muslims and the far left. And some people responded with some of these references. 
in the Twitter storm. Anyway, this is not a surprise, and it's not bigotry against Muslims to say this. Antisemitism is endemic to the faith. It would be a miracle if antisemitism was not an extraordinarily common attitude throughout the Muslim world. One must be ignorant of the actual doctrine to escape being anti-Semitic if you're a Muslim, or you have to have found a 21st century ethical humanistic reason to overlook the doctrine, as no doubt many modern Muslims have. But for anyone to pretend to be confused about this is an intellectual and ethical scandal at this point. This is also the day on which it was reported that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed by U.S. Special Operations Forces. And the kinds of people who are attacking me on Twitter are the kinds of people who must think that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi didn't understand Islam, right? And that ISIS had nothing to do with its actual doctrine. The ante to have a conversation about the real world at this point is to acknowledge that ideas matter. Granted, there are some exceptions. No doubt there's some distance between what people profess to believe and what they actually believe, what they can be motivated to risk their lives to defend. We can acknowledge all these gradations of certainty and candor. But all I can say is that the experience of touching this topic is to be confronted again and again by people's seemingly boundless capacity for self-deception and bad faith. And that's not a pretty picture. There's no mystery as to why most people don't want to spend much time looking at it. And on that happy note, I will leave you. Until next time. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.